Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is about family narratives, how we share the stories of our lives and how that shared understanding shapes who we are. We'll hear from my guests in the studio with compelling narratives to share, and later we'll invite into the conversation a psychology professor who has researched how learning the history of your family and where you fit in builds resilience. And we hope to hear from you with your family story and how you think knowing it has helped make you, you. Also, how you've passed these stories on to your children. Please join our conversation. We have a special phone number today. We're broadcasting from our New Haven studio, 203-776-9677. That's 203-776-9677. You can also email wherewelive at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewelive. My guests in the studio are Dorothy Goldberg, a cantor and Connecticut resident, and Angel Fernandez Chavero, a New Haven community leader. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for being for having us. It's a pleasure. So, Dorothy, let's start with you. Um, but first, a little bit of the backstory here. Um, in April, I was preparing to travel to the Netherlands when I saw a post you had on Facebook about a photography exhibit in Amsterdam that included a photo photo of your mother. So we got in touch, and in the interest of full disclosure, we've known each other a long time and we're friends, and we talked about it, and in fact, that's what's led to today's show, the remarkable story of your mother and the role that your mother's story has played in your life. So I wonder if you could begin and tell us a little bit about her. Sure. My mom was actually born in Berlin, Germany, um, and when she was a very young girl, her family moved to Amsterdam because they felt that the opportunities would be better for Jews there. Her father was a manufacturer of girls' dresses, so she was always very well-dressed. The family did very well in Amsterdam. Uh, They prospered, and she had a wonderful life where she was friends both with Jews and non-Jews. She lived in South Amsterdam. Her family were very integrated into the community, and uh, she was really happy. She spent a lot of time playing with kids on the street and rowing and biking, which is a great Dutch pastime. But when the Nazis invaded in, I believe it was 1941, suddenly everything changed for her. She, Her father and Otto Frank and Frank's father had founded a synagogue together, a liberal synagogue, the mm. first one in in Amsterdam. And the two families are very close. Margot Frank was only about six days different in her birthday from my mother. And they were very close friends. And they also looked down on the little sort of bratty kid sister. (laughs) And, um, And she heard that they had left for Switzerland. They had family in Switzerland. And when things started to get bad there, uh, she had heard that they left for Switzerland, which was their cover story when they went into hiding. My mother was kicked out of school when she was about 15. The Nazis kicked the Jewish kids out of school, and also many of the uh, professionals, including doctors and nurses. My mother loved kids, so she took a two-year course with some of these displaced professionals 
in, um, in pediatric nursing. And so the picture that you saw, Diane, was a picture of my mother in her uniform at age 18, I believe it was, with her star, with her Jewish star on the uniform. She spent two years working in a creche, a daycare center, which was in the center of, um, of, of Amsterdam and across the street from the train station where Jews were being held and later deported to concentration camps. So part of what she did was she would go into the deportation area. She would speak to parents and see if they would give up their young children to her. She would keep them at the daycare center, and at night she was part of a resistance and university plot to get these kids out to hiding to families where they could hide in the countryside. It was a kind of underground railroad. It was an underground railroad, exactly. And actually there's a whole documentary about that um, that story. And so she managed to save hundreds if not thousands of children in that way. And she also helped to save her own family. There were raid there was raid after raid in Amsterdam. And she managed to survive for two years till nineteen forty three when the Nazis really did their final raid. That night she happened to be out looking for a country for a, a hiding place herself in the countryside. She had a bad feeling about it, so she came back, sneaked back early in the morning to find her house boarded up and her parents mm-hmm. deported. She had a brother who was in the underground, the Maquis, in Belgium, and through non-Jewish friends of her parents who hid her for three weeks, which was a very heroic thing to do, she was able to make contact with her brother in Belgium. He sneaked her out in the middle of the night. They, they ended up swimming across the River Moss, which was the border between Holland and France. Mm. And then my mother spent two years under an assumed identity. She was called Colette van der Berg. She went to Catholic church. She, she dyed her hair blonde. My mother's very dark. And she spent two years under this assumed identity as part of the Belgian resistance, basically working um, as house help with the head of the resistance and also as a nurse, as a baby nurse. Um, and so for two years, that's how she survived. When the war finished... She joined the British Army as a nurse, and she was one of the first people into Bergen-Belsen concentration mm-hmm. camp, where she went to look for her parents. She turned over bodies. Remember, she's only at this point 20. This is 1945. My mother is 20 years old. She turned over bodies looking for her parents. She didn't find her parents, but she did hear about Edith, Margot, and Anna Frank, who all died only a few weeks before the liberation. Later, she went to Amsterdam, and she met up with Otto Frank, their father, who was in Auschwitz, and he told her about her own parents who had been sent to the gas chambers there. And Otto Frank became uh, like an adopted grandfather to my family. He was actually my older sister's godfather. And, of course, we're talking about the father of Anne Frank, who Mm -hmm. is the author of the famous diary. That's right. Um, so when she was at Bergen-Belsen, it then became a displaced persons camp, and it was actually like a city for a number of years. People were coming through looking for relatives. She stayed there, and she created a, 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 a daycare center for mostly for the orphaned children. This is what my mother always did. She loved children. Everywhere she went, she set up daycare centers. That's where she met my father, who was a Swiss doctor, Jewish and uh, later they went to Israel, and they uh, were a doctor and nurse team in the budding army there in the Haganah. Mm-hmm. 
So that's really basically her story. And uh, and how about your story then? They, they eventually came to the U.S. They came to the U.S. in 1950. I have two older sisters, uh, one of whom was actually born in Switzerland. The other one was born in the U.S. By the time I was born in 1960, my parents were leading a very comfortable life in New Jersey. And in some ways, I have different parents from my sisters. My sisters... Mm really were born at a time when they were still, my mother was very traumatized still. And so I'd say the effect of that story on me was quite different from Mm. it was on them. And we'll talk about that in a little while. I'd like to turn now to uh, Angel. Uh, Can you share a little of your remarkable story? Well, um, I am a Mexican immigrant. Um, I I came to this country, it wasn't by choice though, because uh, my parents brought me when I was six months old. And to me, the strength of the of my family's narrative is what the stories were that I heard from my parents about their struggles when they lived in Mexico and then came here, which obviously affected me strongly and ended up having me get become so engaged in a lot of different community issues and efforts and so on. Talk, and so, talk a little bit about those stories. Yeah, well— so the most recent stuff has, of course, been on immigration. And what happened to me, in a sense, was at St. Rose of Lima Church, which is the church that's known for its uh, very public actions on social justice issues, especially around immigration, because the church is trying to serve the needs of its parish community, and those, and their, the overwhelming majority are uh, folks from new immigrants from Latin America, many who are in undocumented. And so I remember the first time I talked to the pastor, Father Manship, about, well, actually, I didn't talk to him. He came up to me and said, we'd spoken a few times. He said, look, uh, I got some kids who want to go to college. Uh, they don't know how to do it. They're undocumented. We got to figure something out. You went to Yale. You, you can help us, right? <laughs> and I, there's no way I could say no. Because I thought about, I mean, this isn't the way it broke down, but I know this is what went through my head in an instant, right? I thought about my parents and the hard work they did to get us three to go to school. My sister went to Yale as well. My little sister went to Berkeley. We had all these opportunities, and my parents aren't well-educated at all. This isn't some of these stories of an immigrant who's already upper-class and well-trained. Tell, tell us about yeah. your parents. I'd, I'd like sure. to hear a little more about them. Sure. They. Uh, so my dad is a silversmith by trade. Uh, grew up very poor, uh, born in 1927. He says there was always food on the table, but there are also stories about him not having shoes. You know, uh, and think about it, 1927 is, uh, first, it's post-Mexico Civil War, the War of the Revolution, that that we call it against Porfirio Diaz. And then there was the Great Depression, which um, Mexicans know this saying very well. uh, When the United States catches a cold, Mexico gets pneumonia. So, you know, my my dad says he didn't really think or know about it a lot, but I'm sure it was, you know, a horrible thing uh, because he was working since he was like eight years old, you Mm -hmm. know, earning money for the family. And so he had this dream that he was going to go to the United States and one day drive a big gold Cadillac. You know, he's much more sophisticated than that, but that's, you know, that's the essence Mm -hmm. of of that. He also had a dream because – uh, I don't think I can go into the details, but, you know, again, a family that's poor uh, has, unfortunately, often a lot of dysfunctions. 
And he also wanted to marry somebody who would help him have a real family and a good family life. And so now, in retrospect, you know, I, I can see a lot of that. But anyway, so my mom was from Mexico as well, from a rural community. Now, she was a little better off. Uh, they had land, not cash rich, though, but they had land. They got together, they got married, and they w came to the United States by themselves. You know, the story of most Mexican immigrants is one comes and then a family comes and so on. They came by themselves. We're still the only part of our family here in this country. And so how they survived, how they worked, when my father got sick uh, and was laid up in bed for a year and a half, my mom went to work. I mean, it's a it's a great story. Uh, let me just interrupt for just sure. a moment to, to, to let people know what's going on today. This is where we live. We're talking today about family narratives. I'm Diane Orson for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're exploring how the stories of our lives and our families help to shape who we are. We'd love to invite you to join our conversation. We have a special phone number today because we're in New Haven. The number is 203-776-9677. Email where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So I think that what really strikes me is that when there were times when we had to be um, scolded or corrected, um, I used to joke that the way I raised my kids is, is I am as strict as my parents were, but I would explain things. But that's not totally true because they would explain things very often. And a lot of them came in their own stories. You know, well, this is what my mother would do. My mom was mostly the storyteller at the time. So she would tell me what her mom would do or how she was the favorite of, her of, of my grandfather and was really spoiled. And interestingly enough, she decided she couldn't do that with her kids because she saw some of the chaos that created with her siblings and she was one of like I don't forget 10 it was actually more than that because she had a lot of half brothers and sisters my grandfather was a mm. you know lived up to some of that stereotype um but we're all one big happy family by the way so they would tell these stories about how here's what we do and why we did it and they were very proud not in an overt way that it was somehow a political statement but they were always very proud of our heritage of being Mexican you're going to get a great education here in this country. You know, homework is first. They were real clear about that, even though both of them probably finished secondary school, what would be middle school here, and that was about it. Um, but education was clear, then chores, and but there would always be an emphasis, too, on this is who you are. And um, when did you sense that these stories were part of who you have become? Gosh, I think that might have, I mean, I'm 54 now, so I don't think that finally hit me till maybe my 40s, you mm -hmm. know, for real. Uh, because, yeah, no, I when I was 15, I became, quote, unquote, more ethnically conscious, right, about who I was and reading things that said, oh, Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, however you want to call it, call them. Uh, we have not actually gotten a fair deal in this country. But I grew up with this great myth of what America could be actually very much reinforced by my Mexican parents. Mm -hmm. You know, we came to this country because there are opportunities here. This country does things where, that we, where we can do things in this country that we could not do in Mexico. That's in a way, corruption and so on and so forth. And you're getting an education you could not get back there. So this is a great country and you can move forward. And so 
I just reflected, I was talking about the church, I was just reflecting, I know that what was going through my head is I could see either my parents or myself with those kids. The parents right. saying, I want to have my kid educated. Right. You know, and then the kid saying, I want to get an education. And I knew them and they're really bright. It's like, how the hell can I not help? It wasn't even a question because my family went through the same thing. And we were just lucky because my dad had gone through a silversmith exchange program back in the 50s when the United States was romancing Mexico to make sure there wasn't undue communist influence uh, that Cuba, you know, the Cuba disease would infect Mexico. So because he went to the States, uh, that gave him, you know, the experience to, to come back and, and do stuff. So we came here with our papers. I have a, a green card with my baby picture, you know. Um, and, and so it sounds but, like these stories were sort of woven into your existence all the time. It wasn't just a set time where you sat down and talked about these things. No, um, we very much, dinner time was dinner time. Right. right. Dinner time is, I think, one time of the key places where these time. kind of stories are shared. And we tell these stories. And before, actually, the day before um, I knew about this, my sister's here for her Yale reunion. And um, we were sitting down, and she had been interviewing my dad. So she told some of my dad's stories with me and my youngest daughter, Angela, listening. And, I mean, some of those stories again, really resonate. And my daughter, Angela, uh, has Asperger's, mm. you know, and but she's a great student and, and all that. But with kids with Asperger's, they see things as black or white. And so when you've done something wrong, you're a terrible person and all this other stuff. Uh, she's gotten way better. We've, And so a lot of those stories were how my her grandfather, this man who's always been someone who, always very dignified, very, very much about integrity, a straight arrow. I mean, that's the way I grew up knowing him. Um, and hearing some of the stories about how he had made mistakes and yet moved on. How he proposed four times uh, before uh, my mom accepted. Uh, and it turned. And, and what kills me, actually, because I mean, I'm from this culture, we can be very superficial. It turns out my dad was really good looking. I mean, really <laughs> handsome. So how the hell did that happen, right? <laughs> you know, Um Dorothy, can you talk a little bit about how you, I mean, your mother's story, which we heard earlier in the hour, is quite remarkable. How did you start to learn about that, and how do you think that's helped to shape the person you've become? Well, I always knew about my mother's story, and I think, again, I had these older sisters. They're 8 and 11 years older, Mm -hmm. so by the time I was old enough to understand, even at 5 or at 6, my my sisters were teenagers. So our dinner table conversation very much had to do with uh, my mother's story, my parents' story. It was in the 70s when people started telling their stories. Before that, mm-hmm. a lot of Holocaust survivors were quiet about it. So it was a time when everyone was talking. We also were very active in the civil rights movement and in the anti-war movement. So there were really no, we didn't hold any punches in my family. Mm-hmm. I remember being, the first time I remember my mom talking was when I was in third grade. She went to our local elementary schools and you mean spoke speaking publicly about it. About it. So it was very much part of the fabric of my growing up. We we were a very dedicated Jewish family. Uh, we traveled. We have relatives in Israel. We traveled there. We we celebrated all the holidays. But my mother refused to set foot in the synagogue. I think partly because of the trauma mm-hmm. of her father and Otto Frank having founded the synagogue. It was so, it brought back so many memories. She couldn't bear it. So we were entirely secular growing up. 
I didn't know anything about Judaism, really, about about the religion, only about what it meant to be a Jew. And um, I think that one of the effects that it always had on me was I had this wonderful childhood with really very supportive family and uh, nothing ever went wrong. But I always had a sense that things could fall apart any minute. And I, I wonder, as I've grown older, I realize that that's a typical feature of Holocaust survivors' kids, wow. is that no matter what your personality is like, and I have basically a, a, a cheerful personality like my mother did. My mother was incredibly cheerful. Um, but I always have this sense that everything could fall apart at any minute. And, hmm. and that's never left me. And I, I still think it's probably a, a, a some kind of defense mechanism that served me well with resilience. Um, I'd like to, uh, uh, we're going to have to take a break and then we'll, we'll continue our conversation. Uh, let, let's explain what's going on today. This is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson in today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking today about family stories, family narratives, how these stories of our lives help influence uh, who we are and who we become. We'd love you to join our conversation. Our phone number today, different than the normal uh, where we live phone number because we're down in New Haven today, is 203-776-9677. Email us where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We'll be back. This is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson, and today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guests in the studio are Dorothy Goldberg, a cantor and a Connecticut resident, and Angel Fernandez Chavero, a New Haven community leader. We're talking today about family narratives and how the stories of our lives help to influence and shape who we are and who we become. Uh, we have a special phone number if you'd like to join our conversation. We're broadcasting from New Haven. The number is 203-776-9677. You can email where we live at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We'd like to invite into the conversation now Dr. Marshall Duke. He's the Charles Howard Candler Professor of Psychology at Emory University. Good morning. Glad you're with us. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Um, let's begin by my asking some reaction to what you've heard so far. Uh, sure. If there were two people that I wanted to gather together to demonstrate most clearly what we've discovered over the past 10 years, it would be Dorothy and Angel. Wow. Thank <laughs> their, you. Their stories are absolutely uh, wonderful, and they, they fit uh, very well with the sorts of things that, that took us a long time to discover, but clearly they already know. Can you and talk about is, what you've discovered and, and why, why you've looked into family stories? Well, um, the the um, research that I've been involved in has been part of a long project uh, at Emory, which was uh, funded originally by the Sloan Foundation. We also have to give credit to our funders. Um, and this was a study of um, families uh, in modern America where there are two parents working, where there are all sorts of factors that are pulling families uh, apart from the house, going to soccer matches and various kinds of activities, mom and dad both working, uh, every day being pretty much um, starting out with everybody being together, and then they all go their separate ways and do all kinds of things and then come together again. So uh, the Sloan Foundation was interested in things that we could find that would help uh, maintain families and keep them together uh, psychologically, emotionally, physically as much as possible. And so we began a project uh, looking at 
um, myth and ritual in American life. That is really stories that families uh, construct about themselves, not only over a long period of time, but also every day. And we were interested uh, in, in this from a number of points of view. We had anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists, theologians, historians, all sorts of disciplines looking at the same question about the American family. And uh, my focus was, uh, um, along with Robin Fivish, who's a colleague of mine, uh, on the ways in which uh, family stories seem to cement relationships between one generation and another. And, and um, it was very accidental, but we began our research in the summer of 2001. And we had studied a number of families and just the ways they live, the way they uh, gather together at the end of busy days and the, the things that they do to transmit the values of the, of the family and the stories of the family. And um, September 2001 comes along, and all of a sudden we have, I guess, what would be called a naturally occurring experiment that no one would plan. And that is we had uh, everybody in our country being traumatized in the exact same moment, in the exact same day. Yeah. And after um, a few months, we went back to our families and we said, would you tell us something about how you dealt with September 11th? And what we found very, very briefly was that there were differences in the resilience of the families and the degrees to which the families were able to pull themselves back up after 9-11. And further research showed us that uh, there was one variable that seemed to explain more of the differences among the families than anything else, and this was the, the, the degree to which the children in the family knew the history of their family. Something about knowing where you come from makes you stronger. And I think that's what I heard from Dorothy and Angel. Yes. That's Very so clear. fascinating. Um, uh, so can you talk a little bit more about this? I mean, what about the role of memory and what we choose to remember and what we choose to share and how we do that? Sure. Now, what we, what we remember certainly uh, has to do with what we experience, but what we were looking at was also memory for things that children could not have experienced, right. that is, mm-hmm. learning about things that happened before they were born. And what we found was really that the information that uh, children had that they could not have learned through experience but had to have been told seemed to have been the most important information. And so we developed Mm a a 20-item, very easy scale called the Do You Know scale, 20 questions about things that the children could not have learned um, by themselves. Um, where, where did your parents grow up? Where did your grandparents grow up? Uh, how did your grandparents um, come to this country? Um, things that just happened before the kids were even here. And uh, what we found was that that information seemed to have been the most important. And the memory... Uh, was uh, transmitted by, as we heard from Angel and Dorothy, parents who experienced the, the events themselves, but also grandparents uh, in sitting down with grandchildren and telling them stories. And even more than just grandparents, grandmothers seem to be really important. The anthropologists uh, sometimes call grandmothers the kin keepers because they're the ones who transmit stories about families. They gather children together and they... They tell them things that have happened, sometimes around dinner tables, as Anahel said. 
sometimes at family gatherings, sometimes at birthdays and vacations and things like this. But the important thing when you talk about memories and the memories for stories, uh, kids have memories for stories, and parents and grandparents have memory for stories, but the thing is that we found is that very often these stories are not necessarily true. Yeah. They oh. are uh, yeah, condensations, yeah, yeah. compilations, even inventions, <laughs> what has happened. Does that matter? Um, no, actually it doesn't. That's the very interesting thing. We've actually checked on veracity of the stories, and it seems to be more that the kids remember the story as they've uh, told it. And you'll even find in the same family siblings remembering different stories or different aspects mm-hmm. of stories. And siblings, uh, adult siblings, uh, disagreeing about what really happened. Mm-hmm. What? The important thing is that the kids uh, gather a, a group of stories which gives them a longer history, right. um, what we call an, an intergenerational self. Now, that's a, a, a technical term. It's not really a complex term. It simply says that if you have a child who's like 9 or 10 years old, and that child hears a story about something that happened to his or her grandparents 50 years ago or 70 years ago. Suddenly there's a sense of, of uh, being older than the child really is. So not only am I 10, I have a connection with people who were doing things 50 years ago or 70 years ago uh, or in the 1920s, as Angel mentioned, or during the war in the early 40s, as Dorothy mentioned. And this does create for them a sense of self and a sense of belonging to something larger than themselves. And I, I think Angel used the terms, he said, this is who we are. Yeah. And that, that notion arises out of a memory or an awareness of a family that someone belongs to. And the thing that, uh, about the stories that seems to be so strengthening is that uh, it provides a story of heroes. Now, in each of the stories that um, you're getting told this morning, there are heroes. Or can you imagine looking at, at the Dorothy's mother as she was um, uh, older, and uh, children or grandchildren saying, this lady swam across a river, this lady hid in the countryside, this lady escaped. She's just this old, caring grandmother who takes care of me and, you know, makes me cookies. Now, likewise, Anel's parents uh, left a very difficult situation, and they created a new life for their children. These are stories that sort of you might see in a movie. They're, they're stories of heroes. And when children hear these, they are strengthened because they see themselves as plain old kids living in plain old houses, but they belong to a group of people who have done remarkable things. And we think that this is where some of the resilience comes from because they know that they are part of a family which has dealt with very, very difficult situations and very challenging situations and yet has found some way to overcome them. And typically the stories are told in in times um, where things are are good, around dinner tables, Mm -hmm. at nice houses, Right. at holiday times, at vacation times. 
when the family is not experiencing the turmoil that's described in the stories. Let me jump in. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson in today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you're just joining us, um, our topic today is family narratives, how the stories of our lives help to shape who we are. Um, we have a call on the line, so let's take that call. Uh, Curtis from Wallingford, you're on Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hi. Do you have a story to share? I sure do. My father was joined the Navy in 1940. He grew up in a log cabin that had kerosene lamps instead of lights and outhouses instead of bathrooms. And uh, he joined the Navy because he couldn't feed himself in Georgia. And he was, uh, his squadron was a famous fighter squadron aboard a famous aircraft carrier, the USS Yorktown. Mm-hmm. They were bombed at the Battle of Coral Sea in May of 1942. They then went to the Battle of Midway, uh, a thousand miles northwest of Hawaii, and the three aircraft carriers in the United States side sunk three Japanese carriers within minutes. And then they got a fourth one later in that day. Uh, later on that day, my father's aircraft carrier was uh, torpedoed. And uh, to, to go f- many, many years afterwards, remember, do you remember Robert Mallard, Ballard, who was... Sure, you know, sure. On, well, the Yorktown was on the front cover of the National Geographic. They had found it by a submersible submarine. My father told stories over and over to our dinner table about all his antics in his Navy for six years. Fast forward 75 years, and my nephew, his grandson, is a lieutenant in the United States Navy. He serves aboard a guided missile cruiser in the, in the China, China Sea. So it's remarkable how these stories... Can you talk a little bit about how you passed on these stories to your son? Yeah, I, I got, I'd always been very curious about it, and I had always read a number of books on it. By the time I got done, I probably read 100 books. And I, in Korea, I wrote down a 150-page manuscript of an unpublished uh, story of his life. Mm. And uh, he and his three brothers were all in the Navy. They had 30 battle stars amongst them and not a scratch on them after four years. And so my, my nephews, who are now in the Navy, heard these stories from their grandfather over and over, just like we heard them. And his, he went to the Navy. His brother is a sergeant in Africa on undercover operation right now, so I can't talk about that. Hmm. Um, well, but uh, it's just, I had so much fun writing this book. I went, he had died in 2002, and I went to his fighter squadron, which met in Pensacola that year, and I came with a tape recorder in my hand. And for 36 hours straight, I took stories from these guys, uh. and that's how I wove the story about my father and, and the Navy. Dr. Marshall, do, can you um, uh, comment on um, recording stories or writing down family stories? Um, absolutely. Uh, again, here's a wonderful example of... Thanks, Curtis. You're welcome. Um, there, are, there are literally millions of um, family stories that are floating around. Many of them kind of sit in... in um, drawers and desk drawers and boxes and uh, houses all over the world. Um, we have received many uh, letters uh, similar to um, the, the, the gentleman's uh, story here, uh, where people have written down, actually, the stories of their families. And they, they share them with the families, but also if uh, they find a way to do it, they can share them with other people. Uh, certainly you find this in... Um, the Story Corps on NPR, I right. think. Right. And, and these stories are 
are treasures. They're family treasures as much as an object would be. There's Things some... to be passed on from generation to generation. And the more they can be formalized, written down in some way, even put in other forms on tapes or videos, the, the better. Um, they, they are his, historic stories. They are heroic stories. They're a great example of somebody who who did so many things in the military. And when you ask about who transmits them, the grandfather, the, he, he's a transmitter. And I think the power, again, of the transmission is that this is coming from Grandpa. This is not a man dressed in a uniform flying in an airplane or on a ship. Uh, it's a plain old person uh, who is telling a, an incredibly heroic story which builds pride in children and builds strength in children. Angel, did you want to comment? Yeah, because uh, the parallel for me is I'm a – not that I can tell you details, but I love stories, biography about Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And as time has gone on, the biographies have become more and more even-handed. So I love the fact that our greatest president was – had all these weaknesses. And I realize that in my life because my parents to me you – know, so I went to Yale and I've done all these things. My parents to me still tower way over me on a pillar because of – how they went came to this country, worked really hard, and on on one side, let's call it more the working professional side, my dad towers way over me. And to hear these stories made him more human, right? And that really helps in terms of, well, you know, he wasn't perfect either. Right. right. And uh, so I can do these things. Uh, Dr. Du- Marshall Duke from uh, Emory University, you, you talk sometimes in your, in your uh, work about oscillating back and forth as families relay stories, not just the good, not just the yeah. bad, but, uh, but sort of resilience in the face of challenge. Yeah, and I was just going to mention that um, because, in, in fact, we know that there are a number of possible shapes of uh, family stories, and there's, there are ascending uh, family story shapes which say, say essentially, you know, we started out with very little and we grew and we're strong and we can do all sorts of things now. And there is a bit of, of that in Unhealth's story, uh, starting with very little and growing to have siblings who go to Yale and succeeding here in this country. And then there are descending family stories, which sometimes families have where things are going well and then there's an economic downturn or an illness or a tragedy of some, some kind. And those uh, comprise the, the majority of the stories that the families tell. But the oscillating family story is one which is up and down. Uh, that is, we've had good things happen in our family, and we've had some tough times in our family. And what we found in our research, which probably among the most surprising things, is that when children hear stories about bad things, um, as well as good things, it's the most strengthening of all mm, the yep. story forms because it essentially says, look, you know, like every other family, we have down times, but we are a family which sticks through those down times, works through those down times, and comes back to being up again. Dorothy? nature of life is really up and down. So essentially the message, children, listen to this. If you're having a bad time some, in school or with other people or at your job, um, there will be better times coming. You just have to stay with it. And I think this is the source of the resilience, is the, the stories of a family, even of a, of a city. Um, and Atlanta has just gone through I-85 being broken for seven weeks, which really <laughs> changed the city tremendously. Mm-hmm. Ups and downs. The highway is open again, and we're moving. 
But there was in the, the, the family story of the city, you'll find ups and downs. In the family story of a nation, you find ups and downs. So, um, so I just wanted to interject here because we've been very fortunate in our family. Uh, my sister Rita, who is a writer, um, and, and I also started out as a journalist and began recording my mother's story in the uh-huh. 80s. Um, my sister, over a period of, I don't know, 15 years or so, interviewed my parents and did a tremendous amount of research and has now published a book of, mm-hmm. of, my, of my mother's story, mostly also a little bit my father, and, um, and her reaction to it and how it's changed her life. And it's mm-hmm. called um, Motherland, Growing Up with the Holocaust. Mm. So we're very fortunate that we can actually now pass this family story down. Um, and also the interesting thing was that a lot of things that my mother said were, were accurate. When she mm. went to investigate, she had a wonderful memory for dates and places. This is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson, and today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you're just joining us, we're talking about family narratives, how the stories of our lives and our families help to shape who we we are. You can join the conversation, 203-776-9677, a special phone number today because we're in New Haven. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. This is Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson in today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Let's uh, start with where you're from. Calcutta. Which part? I'm adopted. I'm not really Indian. <laughs> I'm starting to remember. Saru, you're a beautiful boy. You're very proud of yourself. A life I'd forgotten. Are you okay? I had another family. A mother. A brother. I can still see their faces. That's a clip from the trailer for the film Lion, which I highly recommend, by the way, if you haven't seen it. It's based on a true story about a young boy in India who ends up lost on the streets of Calcutta. He's adopted by a family halfway around the world. And it's really about his search to find his way home and in many ways to reclaim that unique family narrative. Uh, That's the topic of our show today. We're talking about family stories and how they influence who we are, how they help to shape who we become. Um, We're exploring this with two of my guests here in the studio, Dorothy Goldberg, a Cantor and Connecticut resident, Angel Fernandez Chavero, a New Haven community leader. And joining us by phone is Dr. Marshall Duke, Charles Howard Candler, Professor of Psychology at Emory University. Um, I wanted to play this clip because I wanted to uh, bring up the question of those who may have complex family narratives that they're dealing with, uh, those who may be adopted to start with. Um, I wonder, um, Dr. Duke, if you've worked with um, adopted children and and how that experience um, affects their their psychological understanding of themselves. Uh, Sure. I I think I can say a few things about that. Uh, one, of the, one of the people who's done uh, an awful lot to um, popularize uh, the research that we've done here is Bruce Feiler uh, from the New York Times, and he uh, has written about the story uh, research that we've done. And uh, it, one of the most common questions he gets when he talks um, about this uh, on book tours is, uh, what about adopted children? What about the stories that we transmit to adopted children? 
And it turns out that um, based upon our research as well as my own personal experience having one adopted child, is that the, the family uh, that adopts the child really has the story which is um, given to that child, that the, uh, the adoptive family's story can become uh, the story of the, for the adopted child. Uh, it is his family. Um, in my own family, it turns out that my adopted son is the one who is on Ancestry.com and is tracing the history of the family. Mm-hmm. knows more about our family than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it is his story, um, it, much like uh, when we uh, attend a university or, or a high school or, or move to a town. The story of the university becomes our story. Um, adopted uh, children own the same story that the other children do. Uh, sometimes they also can add to that by seeking information about their biological parents, which is what happens in Lion. Uh, I think, though, that um, the character in Lion uh, really now owns two stories. He owns the story of his biological mother, but he also owns the story of the family that adopted him and raised him. Uh, in some ways, that's even more strengthening because there are multiple heroes involved. And uh, I, I want to focus on heroes just for a moment because... Um, in in uh, this country, uh, especially among um, Holocaust survivors, uh, the word survivor says that these are folks who have gotten through something that was horrendous. And they uh, are heroic in that they have gotten through and come to this country and been able to make a life. Similarly, uh, Angel's uh, relatives coming from Mexico, or if you really look at the, this nation, you find that uh, almost every family has a background in which someone comes from somewhere else. So, so I'd like to comment on that. This is this is Dorothy. Um, yep. uh, in in my family, obviously, we do have this this hero worship in a way. I never had grandparents that I could relate to, but my children did. I have two children, Rebecca and Adam. Um, Becca, in particular, was very close to my mother. She also loves children. And she has ended up making her life's work um, saving children actually in Tanzania, in Africa. She's created an NGO to support an orphanage and children's village, and she's adopted two children from that orphanage. So speaking of family histories, they share our family history, of course, but they were they were three and five when they came into our family. They still have extended family in Tanzania, and Becca goes back every summer so that they can know their original family story. So we've got both components in our family. And I'd like to add, um, this is related, but how I realized that the family narrative, when you marry, you know, how those stories also become a part of it. So, um, and this is, sounds a little pretentious, but my, uh, we sent my uh, oldest daughter to a fancy New England prep boarding school, okay, she calls me crying one day because the kids are being mean to her. They're being a bunch of jerks because she's Latina and they assume all these things and she's crying about it. And I said, well, what? my first thought was to say to her, what the hell? Didn't you tell them I went to Yale and shut them up? But uh, what actually I suddenly realized, no, Selena, let me tell you, this is why you need to be proud and never worry about what they say because your mother's family came from the island of Puerto Rico they grew up, they literally grew up in the center of the island on the mountains where they were still eating, excuse me, working to eat. In other words, they were raising their own food and everything. No electricity, nothing. 
And so not only do they come to the mainland and go through a huge cultural shift like anyone who norm would normally immigrate from a foreign country, but on top of that, they had to transition to urban life. And on top of that, they literally traveled to the future because they didn't have any recognition of quote-unquote modern society. And what did they produce? My wife and her siblings are all productive members of society. No, they didn't go to Yale or anything else. But they're all, they, they, they grew up in the worst neighborhoods of, of New Haven and Philadelphia, and they avoided all that stuff. No delinquency. They're all productive members of society, have jobs in government or, other, or jobs that require a certification or something else. I mean, that's an amazing story. I, I, we're, we only have a few minutes left. I think we could talk about this for a long time. But I don't want to um, end without, uh, Dr. Duke, just a quick comment about our 21st century busy lives and how do we find the time, when do we find the time to, to pass on these most important family narratives? Um, good. Uh, let me let me just be quick about this. Uh, two things. One, um, when do we tell the children the stories? On health suggests um, suggests that they appear as uh, as needed. Mm -hmm. Might be that a story isn't told until a child is twenty and has some need to hear a story. Mm -hmm. And parents need to really use good judgment on when to tell stories. But the bad stories sometimes are as important, even more important mm -hmm. than the good ones. And there was a good example of telling his, um, his daughter. Uh, the the um, the 21st century, uh, we need to do as much as we possibly can to maintain the family narrative, to maintain the structure of the family and the integrity of the family, and to communicate as much as possible in any way we can, in any means we can. Uh, Anil mentions family dinners. We're, a lot of the early research showed that family dinners were critically important for kids, but it may not have been the dinner, it may have been... You know, we, we sometimes get together to have dinner, but it may be that we're having dinner so we can be together. We're okay, quite... we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank my guests. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Marshall Duke from Emory University, my, my in-studio guest, Dorothy Goldberg, a Cantor and Connecticut resident, Angel Fernandez Chavero. Thanks for joining us on Where We Live for this story about family narratives. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer today is Jonathan McNichol. Thank you. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Check out WNPR.org slash Where We Live for more about the show. I'm Diane Orson in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.